Welcome to The Network Effects, a show about how innovators have turned their ideas into movements. Hosted by Zan Bennett and Daniel Avnieli. Hey everyone, welcome to The Network Effects. Today's an active mentor, an investor, and a CEO. Having bounced from different companies, he's now the head of Yanomi. Please welcome Kent Dixon. I guess the first question that I kind of want to start is, is kind of take us back to when you were first getting out of college. Um, you went, if I understand, went to the MBA for organizational management. And mm-hmm. what was your thoughts on how that was applicable to the pos- positions that you got in right after, right after college? Right. Uh, well, I guess the reason, so my undergrad was in engineering and, uh, and uh, I expected that I'd be in some sort of technology business for a long time, but um, wanted to also explore and try to understand the the business end of things. And so I got a kind of a general MBA in organizational management. This is a way to kind of get background in finance um, and marketing and uh, just some of the some of the basics of business. And it ended up being a pretty good experience for me. I worked, uh, I went to school full time uh, and uh, and then worked uh, part time at Ball Aerospace while I was doing that, which turned into a full time thing afterwards. Um, so for me, it was just really uh, not wanting to be pigeonholed as an engineer and to have you know other things I could potentially do uh, as my career unfolded. Yeah, and being able to keep both those options open, did you kind of know immediately that you wanted to get into the startup space? No, I didn't. Uh, I really didn't. I, I, I think I didn't. I, I wasn't really aware of uh, startup community. I think, you know, this was a long time ago, and the startup community then in Colorado certainly wasn't uh, what it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, I assumed that I would go to work for an aerospace company like Ball, um, and there would be opportunities to eventually, you know, grow into management or something else. Um, but it just, it turned out that... Um, that uh, that exposed me to a lot of a lot uh, of sort of what was about to be born uh, around a lot of web technologies and the internet and everything else was sort of being fostered um, inside of uh, of universities and NASA contractors mm-hmm. is where a lot of the original uh, between academia and uh, and aerospace, where a lot of the original innovation in what really turned into the web uh, really started. And so that's where I got interested in it, int- introduced to it. And, but then quickly, I think maybe this was, I don't know if it's in the DNA or not, but I quickly uh, realized that, like, wow, uh, this is going to change the way that, that everything works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think I could make a living uh, working on this stuff going forward. I didn't know exactly what that looked like, but I could tell that there was a there there. Yeah. And you decided to stay in Boulder, which is uh, yes. also a nice little touch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, uh, and that, that's, you know, a story unto itself, but, you know, over the years, um, uh, when you're in technology, when you're in software, uh, you know, there is this enormous magnetic pull of, uh, of talent and people who, who, who are interested in, and experienced and good at, uh, at, at building uh, or driving software teams. There's this enormous magnetic pull to go to the Bay Area um, because that's where everything happens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and we, me, my wife and I, um, really had a very intentional 
um, uh, conversation uh, very early on to say, you know, do we want to go somewhere or do we want to stay here? And we, you know, we examined it re really closely in pluses and minuses and said, you know, this is where we want to be. Um, and then that kept coming up like every year. It was really an annual conversation for many years of like, okay, are we still doing this? Are we still going to stay here? Are we going to go somewhere else? And decided to stay here. Um, and, uh, and, you know, what's happened then is what you see now in this town and, and around Colorado too, Denver as well these days, and that this is, this is recognized as one of the great sort of uh, centers of entrepreneurialism, uh, software, cloud computing. Um, and uh, you look around and you see, you know, Google here and Twitter and Amazon coming soon and, uh, and, uh, and, and of course, Oracle and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and all these companies here. That, that really wasn't the case back in the 90s. Um, so it's sort of grown up just because I think, you know, I'm not unique. A bunch of us said, you know what, you shouldn't have to compromise your lifestyle and, you know, pick up and move around. We should be able to make this happen here. And, and it has. Yeah. Very cool. So, yeah. so you talked a bit about how you were seeing the possibility of, of an internet of things kind of coming up mm -hmm. from your experience in engineering and how this, this new industry was uh, revealing itself. Where was the point where you started to recognize the, the beginning iterations of Yanomi? And what can you tell us about how this started off? Yeah. Well, um, when I really first started to, uh, to work in enterprise software, I mean, we've kind of done a couple of startups here in Boulder. One that got acquired by a company by BEA, um, which eventually then also got acquired by Oracle. Um, and one of the problems that we were solving then uh, for enterprise software is that um, there's all this legacy stuff inside of companies, legacy, you know, software and IT systems and computer systems and networks. Um, and the, and the, and uh, the, the job of making everything work together that was not designed to work together uh, was pre is a pretty interesting intellectual problem. And, you know, and after a while, you know, what we figured out there is, you know, with, uh, with some really good software architecture and a lot of ingenuity and creativity, uh, you can actually create a user experience in the enterprise that makes everything look like it's unified. Uh, to to a business person or to a user at a terminal or a screen or a, a, or a phone or something. Um, so that was a really interesting problem turned into huge business. Um, uh, and, and Oracle eventually bought us for $8 billion. That's the scale, you know, of the, how valuable this integration layer is. And at the time we were calling it middleware. Sounds kind of boring, but obviously it's of high value. Um, when I, when we sold the company and I went and did another startup, I went to work uh, at Tendril uh, with Tim Enwell, who I think you know. Um, uh, I saw a quote from him on here. Uh, Just interviewed. Yeah. Um, uh, and we started building a, a software platform to make things in the home sort of coordinate together for the purposes of, of saving energy. Um, but I quickly started to, to realize, like, holy crap, what is just about to happen uh, in the home is that stuff, regular old things, are going to start getting connected. 
thermostats and light bulbs and plugs and light switches and door locks and televisions and uh, and and speakers and and appliances and this is kind of starting to look like a familiar problem to me. It's just like the enterprise from the 90s and the early aughts of there's all this stuff deployed uh, inside an enterprise. None of it was designed to work together. And if you can apply so a software abstraction layer to make it all look like it's unified, even though we all know that it's not, the value of what you can build on top of that when everything works together is pretty interesting. And... Uh, and we said, well, holy crap, you know, I've been building essentially middleware my, for most of my career. Uh, maybe we could do that for the home. Uh, and if we do that, the consequence, you know, could be really, really interesting. You know, at Tendril, we were trying to solve this big problem of energy management. And, um, uh, you know, it never really took off, not in the way that we had envisioned. Uh, but my thought was that, well, crap, if we can make the home, meaning every home uh, on the planet potentially, uh, look like an API to a software developer, like a web app developer or somebody like that, or a mobile app developer, um, uh, and just make it look like, hey, there's just a bunch of devices in this home, and some of them I can turn on and off and under these conditions, and I can get sensor information from them. What will they create with that? Well, some of them will create um, energy management things, which will solve this problem that we were trying to solve at, at Tendril probably 10 years too early. Um, some of them will create things that will literally allow aging people to live in their homes longer because, you know, there's, they're, they're being sort of cared for or at least, you know, observed in ways that, yeah. uh, that could have been scary, you know, just a, a, a few years ago. Um, it'll have some good impacts on, uh, on, uh, on security and way just, you know, um, security is done in homes now. And, uh, and we said, man, but the only problem is none of that stuff works together. So if we can solve that problem, then a thousand flowers will bloom. And just like what happened in an enterprise and just like what happened, you know, on the internet, you know, creativity can be unleashed by just simplifying, uh, this interface to the home. So, so that's kind of where it was born from is like, you know, there's some hard, really problem, interesting problems, but, you know, history, you know, sort of tends to repeat itself. Um, and, uh, and if you can identify those patterns and, uh, and then, you know, apply some, some learnings as well as, you know, more modern uh, software architectures and business models and things like that, then, uh, then uh, you can do some pretty interesting things. Yeah, that's really smart, though. I love it. Yeah, well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's... Uh, the story's still being written. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where you're willing to take risks, and I think that that's a huge part of being an entrepreneur is willing to take the risk on yeah. seeing if it's going to work out. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you said is that you're tendril, or am I saying it wrong? Tendril? Yeah, no, tendril. Okay. Yeah. It was a little bit maybe ahead of its time. Sure. I was just wondering, when you're looking to evaluate like a startup idea or a concept, what is time? do you consider time the most important or what type of elements do you think really contribute? That, that's a great question. It's hard to answer um, uh, because, uh, because I, I think... You know, investors will tell you, you know, when you go out and pitch ideas um, as an entrepreneur and you go talk to investors and like, hey, I've got this great idea and I want to do this. Uh, usually the the ideas, you know, are not the hard part. 
um, you know, I, I, good ideas, you know, are relatively easy to generate. It's timing that is really difficult. You know, are you in the right place at the right time? Um, and, you know, companies like Tendril were certainly ahead of their time. Uh, to extent, you know, we started Udemy six years ago, um, you know, to solve this problem for, you know, the, the connected home. Arguably, six years ago was still way too early. Um, but, uh, but yet, um, the problem that we're solving is hard enough that it was going to take a long time regardless. So better to start early and be ready when the hockey stick moment happens, um, if you can survive long enough for that. Um, uh, then, so I think you know, understanding what the right problem to solve is, and you know where the puck is going, and if you can, if you can start early enough to solve that problem before uh, it becomes uh, you know a big thing, and, and be in position to just take it over or, you know, have an immediate impact. Um, that's, that's what you want as an entrepreneur. Now, you know, like ideally, you know, the storybook is, oh, I had this idea, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and I, you know, I coded it up and put it out there and, you know, the right time was right then. Yeah. And it just caught fire and it went crazy. You know, that doesn't happen very often. Um, so lining up the timing, uh, with the idea and the execution for it is, is the hard part. And so in our case, you know, what we've been doing is, is, uh, we knew we were early, um, uh, but we knew that it was a hard problem and need to be solved and it's just what we wanted to work on. Um, and so we started working on it and we did it in a way, unlike what we did at Tendril, so some lessons learned there is we did it in a very, very lean way saying let's spend as little as we possibly can while working on this until we really get evidence that the market's taking off and then let's you know start throwing it more money at it but not gobs of money not hundreds of millions of dollars like yeah. hundreds of thousands of dollars you know type of a thing yeah very interesting <clears throat> one of the things that you talked about is uh, you know timing and also the yeah. possibility of kind of uh, when you're starting a company there's a, there's a certain level of uncertainty that you're faced with yeah. And so when it comes to uncertainty that you face with, especially launching off into any one of these companies, what is something that you know now that you really wish you had known back when you, when you were starting it? Hmm. Uh, yeah, great. Also another good question. Um, I think that, um, uh, what I wish I knew then that I've discovered is, and this is the fourth startup I've been involved in, my first time founder, but I've been, you know, very intimately involved in a number of startups. Um, but the thing that I really didn't realize when we were starting, you know, me that took, you know, probably two or three years for us to, to latch onto is that um, the tr traditional, I'm using air quotes, uh, uh, funding sources for startups um, aren't the only funding sources for startups. So that kind of traditional thing is angel investors and VCs, right? Um, people who are basically, and VCs are institutional investors, you know, they're people who go out and raise a bunch of money from wealthy individuals, put it all together, and then they go evaluate all of these opportunities to invest it in. Um, and they all have, you know, they're very simple, you know, several, and there's lots of them out there. They, they have a similar process. Everybody kind of knows how that works. And, you know, for many years, 
um, I think we all just thought like that's where money comes from when you're a startup. But it doesn't. Um, and so these days, as you know, entre- entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs uh, uh, approach me and sort of ask for some of these lessons learned. This is the number one: is um, VCs are very difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, they're great and they serve a really important part of the ecosystem. Um, but unless you're, you know, kind of the Facebook Mark Zuckerberg, got the t- right timing at the right time and the right product. Um, you know, they'd just as soon not deal with you. You know, they they want somebody who can, they're pretty sure is going to do a 10x return on this investment, if not more, in a very abbreviated time frame because they've got to return money to their investors and close this fund and start the next fund and everything yeah. else. This is how their business works. Um, but what I discovered through this, and because we knew that this was going to be kind of a long thing, we weren't probably going to be a 10x return company within a couple of years. I mean, hell, we're six years into it, and we're still not 10x. Um, but that uh, there are other people who let's refer to as strategic investors. And these are companies who are successful in their own right, often public companies, um, who have... Uh, you know, a good business going, um, and they've got products, and they maybe they're 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 very successful in their market space, if not dominant in their market space, and yet they know that where the puck is going for them is slightly different. Um, you know, not within their traditional DNA, um, and so. Uh, with all the cash that they're basically generating as a company, sure, they, they put it back into their own R&D um, and things like that, but there's only so much that they can do with it. And so uh, many of them have begun really looking for companies outside that they can invest in to help basically outsource R&D for them. Or, uh, or you know, that's one way to put it. It's not actually outsourcing R&D, but it's a way that they can take their cash and invest it in something that will eventually have a return, sure, on that investment. And that's the way VC would look at it, like, oh yeah, that thing's going to have a return, I want to invest in this thing. But what, what separates the strategic investors is that that, you know, the return on the investment isn't the number one objective for them, is it, 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 it also heavily includes, you know, how does the development of this technology or this marketplace or this type of software platform allow my business, which may be, you know, manufacturing mechanical locks, um, uh, how, how is that going to impact my business 10 years out? If a, if, if a platform like this exists, if a company like this exists, does it help me sell my products? Better. So it could be that let's say so one of you know uh, two of our biggest investors are strategic investors. One of them is Schlegelock Company. Um, so you know you may think of them you know as a very traditional you know mechanical lock company, and they've been around for a hundred years, and you know they're worth five billion dollars or something like that. Uh, no, eleven billion dollars. Excuse me. Um, um, and it's a product you don't think about uh, very often. Uh, but they know that they don't have the DNA around um, IoT, um, and they sure they can put radios inside those things. They can you know design you know the way the power is going to be used and everything else. They're great at that. Um, 
but how is that going to interoperate with other things? How is it going to interoperate with new services like Amazon Key that's going to let people in and out? And how do they create relationships with consumers? Um, and how do they make sure that the whole is greater than some of the parts in a home? Like so far out of their their range that they know that they're self-aware enough that they can't you know, really uh, solve all those problems. So they can invest in a company like Yonomi, which they have, um, and, uh, and you know, they'll one day, I'm sure, they'll, they'll get a return, you know, when we have an exit event, um, they'll get a return on that investment. But in the meantime, uh, we've worked very closely with them, influenced their product roadmap. They've, they're, they're also a customer of ours who uses our technology and the products that they're launching now in residential are the fastest growing products they've ever had in a hundred years. Um, and, and they're iterating faster on new product development and launches. They're iterating on new services like Amazon key and, uh, and, and, and dash replenishment services and things like that more than they've ever done. They're generating new revenue streams that used to be unthinkable for a company like that. Um, and so the return they'll get on working with a company like, you know, me is going to be way more than just the monetary return that they get from the stock that they bought mm -hmm. from us. But the, the fact that we exist um, and, uh, and are having an impact in the marketplace makes their uh, ability to go to market much better. So long-winded answer, and I apologize. I'm sure you'll no, edit this. No, very interesting. Uh, I'm sure you edited this, but the, but the headline is, you know, think about not just traditional VCs, especially if you have a product that may be a little bit early, but clearly is going to be important in, in the space. Look at strategic investors who also need for that thing to exist in order for their vision to play out. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of students listening and when you read books and you hear about the startup community, you always think VCs yeah. and just get your money as quick as you can, grow as quick as you can, sell as quick as you can. Yeah. And you're basically saying that, no, you need to think about who your investors are. You can help them, they can help you. Right. It's not just about money. Exactly. Yeah, that exactly. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So the the uh, the the virtuous cycle there is, you know, and all VCs again. This is not to disrespect VCs because yeah. I do think they play a very important role, but at the right time. Yeah. Um, uh, but the virtuous cycle here is that uh, is that folks with money can help those of us without who need money. Uh, achieve something that they couldn't achieve on their own, and that's going to both make their business bigger and and our business bigger, and everybody wins, and consumers win too. So, uh, literally everybody wins. You know, the VC you know startup relationship is you know, and VCs will say, oh well, we help in a lot of other ways. You know, we we have these networks, and we'll introduce you to other people, and that's valuable, and it is. Yeah. But it's not the same as you know when Schlage or or, or Gentex or somebody else basically is going to market and they're singing our praises, which brings us more customers. Um, and also we're helping them launch products. Like it literally is very virtuous. Like, you know, their business is thriving as a result of this relationship. Our business is thriving too. And everybody's winning. Yeah, that this. totally yeah. makes sense. Um, like I said earlier, there's a lot of students that are listening to this and I know I can speak for myself that you, you kind of feel like there's a lot of uh, a judgment when you're trying to find the right job and the right thing. I was just wondering, what do you look for when you're trying to hire someone new to your company and what stands out most to you? Mm. Um, well, uh, 
There's, there's a few things, um, but probably the most important thing is um, uh, flexibility uh, and uh, willingness to learn. And so the flexibility piece of it is, you know, in a startup, even at this stage, we're six years into it, um, it, it the, the most valuable people in the company will be people who are not specialists, but but um, generalists and and jacks of all trade because the job changes pretty rapidly or what the business requires changes pretty rapidly, um, and so um, so folks who can you know wear multiple hats you know it, I can give you many examples in this business but uh, uh, one of one of our young engineers uh, Connor Parrish who's a CU grad. Uh, just within the last year and a half or something, um, kind of came in and he does software development, but he also does technical account management. He's working with some of our customers who are building apps and solutions on top of our platform. He's doing direct out outreach with them. He's also, you know, writing uh, uh, technical documentation and publishing articles, you know, for our marketing blog, things like that. People who just have the the ability and the interest and the fearlessness, I think, just to, just to take on, you know, what's the job today? I'm going to go do that thing. I've never done it before. I'll freaking figure it out as yeah. I go along. And um, so whether you're early in your career like a Connor or later in your career um, as I am, uh, uh, just the ability to, to sort of say, you know, if I don't know how to do something, I'll figure it out and I'll do that job, you know, because that's the job that needs to be done, you know. It's when you're in a small company, you say, "Oh, we need you know somebody who's who's really good at at uh, channel marketing." And you look around like, "Anybody here ever done that before?" No. Are we going to go hire a brand new person just to do that job? Hell no. Yeah. We're going to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, and you do. So I think just that mindset of do whatever it takes to get the job done, and be unafraid of of trying and failing something because, you know, you fail on a Wednesday and then maybe by Friday you figure it out or next month or whatever the time frame is. But uh, just somebody who's who's excited by that terrifying challenge and willing to jump in with both feet. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, you talked a lot about, like, the people who you're working with. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on leadership style and what you personally believe is, is important when, when, you're, when you're a leader over other people. Yeah. Well, you know, what's the kind of companies that I've always uh, been a part of and helped found in this case are, are you know, companies where uh, it requires really smart people. Um, and uh, so, you know, the when... There's an old adage you've probably heard, you know, um, that you should always be uh, uh, hiring somebody who's better than you are. Um, and uh, uh, when you have that mentality of, you know, I mean, they, they may be different places in there, less experienced perhaps, but somebody who's like, you know, clearly very smart, capable, and. Uh, uh, and creative. Um, if you're always sort of doing that successfully, then then you, the hirer and uh, the leader in the organization, 
you know, it's really easy to have a lot of humility uh, because you're surrounded by people who you admire as being uh, smarter and better than you are. And so it makes it really easy to be uh, a servant uh, to them. Uh, like, you know, I I've, haven't felt in years like I'm giving anybody any orders. Uh, Direction, yes, you know, and, and vision, where we're going in the company, why we're doing that and everything else. But it, that's the easy part. The rest of it is uh, give them, you know, space um, to, uh, to be creative and, and do great things and, uh, and, and, and get the hell out of the way um, and, uh, and make sure that, that folks are, you know, happy um, and uh, have the resources that they need, you know, within you know, within reason, because you know we're we're not uh, we're we're not Google or anything else. Is like you know, just like the example, like no, you're not going to go hire another person for that. We're going to have to figure out how to do it with the people that we have. Um, but uh, but if you can basically uh, serve serve the people, I think that's the best part of leadership you can do is. Uh, is, uh, is, is create opportunity for other people to, to be creative and to be recognized for that. Um, and uh, the rest is easy. The, the direction and the vision and the excitement, you know, it's very authentic that I have for where we should go for the company and people who have come here, um, you know, buy into that. You know, that's why they come here and work anywhere they want. But they chose to come here because this is kind of, to them, this is very interesting and exciting. And then after that, um, you basically just uh, make sure they're well taken care of and great, good things happen. Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, it's almost a, at times being a motivator as well, you know, like just making sure that they see the vision and kind of, since you know that they're smart, you're letting them kind of do their thing and make it happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, sports analogies are way overdone in, in business. Um, so at risk of, of making that even worse, but I mean, it is leadership is is coaching uh, as much as anything uh, because you know when you look at it, you know yes, I mean I'm I'm doing doing jobs and everything else, but maybe it's player coach a little bit, but um, but for the most part, um, you, you know the people you know go to a football game or a basketball game or something like that. The people who are doing the spectacular things are on the on the court or on the field. Not on the sideline, you know, but uh, the the folks on the sideline hopefully are inspiring, creating space for folks to be creative and uh, and uh, uh, um, uh, giving good, you know, inspiration. And the rest of it, you know, is basically after that, it's raw talent out there doing what it does. Yeah, I mean, we really value your time and we really appreciate this. So we'll start wrapping up the final yeah, questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, First, for any of uh, the students that are listening, are there any books or movies or podcasts or anything that really have inspired you or shaped the way you run your business or hmm. think think about business? Um, uh, there's a couple of podcasts that I think are are useful because they do kind of what you guys are are doing, which is go out and and interview uh, folks who uh, have have uh, have done some successful startups. So, Masters of Scale. Uh, by Reed Hoffman is a really good one, um, and uh, and actually I, I think the How I Built This um, by NPR is yeah. actually really good too, because it's not just technology. You know, sometimes it's other types of businesses that they 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 talk about. So I think those are really good. Yeah. I think um, uh, what um, 
what that genre needs more of is uh, not just like the the home run success type of companies, uh, but the ones that are maybe you know more like a single or a double or a triple as opposed to a home run type of success or even a few failures in there. It, and I do think that, you know, in a few of these, you know, I think Reed and, and, and Guy Raz uh, do a good job of, you know, kind of digging the background of some of these entrepreneurs and talking about some of the failures that they did have before they got the success. But, uh, but I do think that there's very much as much to learn from failures or partial successes as, as there are to learn from these massive successes. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's a hell of a lot of luck involved in, you know, in those success stories, you know, right time, you know, right place, um, and just kind of stumbling on thing. And, you know, and then executing through it is, is not an accident for sure, but, uh, but finding that successful point is hard. So those, those are two that I really recommend. Um, I do think that, um, bookshelf over here. We've got a few books, but uh, take a but, picture. <laughs> yeah, uh, venture venture deals is a, is a really good sort of primer for somebody who's about to start because it just educates you about the the language and the types of uh, the, how investments are done and, and you know what they're called and how a convertible note works and how you know an equity round works and uh, what discounts mean and, and stuff like that. So it's a basic. Uh, business book, maybe in business school you guys kind of go over that these days because you're in a good entrepreneurial program that didn't exist when I was in business school um, and of course local local guys who wrote it um, and it's a really good sort of foundational thing that everybody should should do, should read um, if you're going to be ever raising money. Yeah, that's amazing thank you. Yeah. Um, I guess the last question would be, is there anyone that you would recommend that we interview next? Anyone that you kind of like think is a good example of what an entrepreneur is? Yes. Um, and it's somebody who has just suffered a setback too in their business or basically just shuttered it. Had a great idea, great visionary, um, and it just didn't work out. At least not yet. You know, they may come back to it. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a guy named Andrew Smerick who I can introduce you to um, who uh, was the founder of a company called iFlight. Um, and uh, iFlight was a very inspiring company, and Andrew's one of the smartest guys I know, um, and it just didn't work out, maybe not right right place, right time, and he's got a bunch of, he's being very introspective about, you know, what they really learned from this experience. So I think that's really useful. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of other successful companies, and you've met some of them, you know, you've met the Tim Enwalls of the world, um, but a guy like Andrew, I think, is worth spending time with. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to. I've, I've heard about iFlight, and I, I'd be really interested in talking to him, so thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and thank you for your time. I, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective of it, and uh, I definitely learned a lot. So Yeah, yeah good. Thank you so much. Good, yeah. No, my pleasure. Thanks for thinking of me.